0: I have other writers that say, what are you doing? And I'm, I'd say, I'm not writing right now. They do not get it. If you're a writer, you have to write all the time. You have to be driven. It has to be your cross to bear. That <laughs> has never been my approach to writing, and it still
1: isn't. Welcome back to Working. I'm Isaac Butler. And I'm June Thomas. June, it is as nice as always to see you in a postage stamp-sized box on Zoom on my laptop. Uh, Whose voice did we hear at the top of the show?
2: That voice belonged to Ellen Hart, who is a mystery writer. She has written a couple of long-running series, but her most famous and most long-running are the Jane Lawless mysteries. She wrote 27 books in that series.
1: 27. My God, that's Mm -hmm. a that's a Sue Grafton alphabet and uh, a random Spanish (laughs) language thrown in there or something. Yeah. Uh, uh, For people who don't know the Jane Lawless series, what can you tell us about it?
2: So they're cozy mysteries. And Jane Lawless is a restaurateur who loves to solve mysteries. So an amateur sleuth. She has a larger than life best friend, Cordelia Thorne, who is amazing, provides comic relief. Cordelia is involved in the world of theatre, so the books often have food and theatrical elements. And Jane and Cordelia are lesbians, though they live very integrated lives with lots of straight friends and family members in their lives. And over the years, Jane got more serious about the sleuthing. She became a private investigator and as is apparently the law, eventually she worked on a true crime podcast. But she always kept her restaurant open all the time.
1: Wait, so you're saying there's a restaurant involved, there's theater involved, and there's lesbians involved, and it's a murder mystery? How have I not read these?
2: I know. They're basically you and and also in Minnesota, which I know you have a connection with. So yeah. That's
1: crazy. All right. Yeah. Uh, so why did you want to talk to her specifically for working?
2: So back in 2021, when I was first working on my book proposal, I wanted to speak with someone who knew the original Amazon bookstore, which was the first feminist bookstore in the US. And Ellen very kindly shared her memories of the place with me. And so while we were on the phone, I happened to ask her when the next Jane Lawless boot was coming out. And she told me there might not be one, that she was thinking of retiring. So a couple of years later, during which time we have not seen a new Jane Lawless. I thought it was time to return to that question because I just don't hear many conversations about writers and other creative people deciding to stop writing and doing their creative thing, at least not for money.
1: That's fascinating. And I think this is the first time we'll feature a conversation about this subject here on on Working. Um, Do our Slate Plus subscribers get a little extra today?
2: Oh boy, do they. As I mentioned, Ellen had a series that ran for 30 years. So this was obviously the perfect opportunity to ask my very favourite question. Do the characters still live in your head when you finish the book or books in her case? Also, Ellen was a professional chef before she was a full time writer. So I asked her what the two art forms had in common.
1: Well, that is incredible. I'm sure they go great together. And you know what else goes great together? Listening to this podcast and being a member of Slate Plus. With your Slate Plus membership, you'll get all sorts of bonus goodies. I'm talking full access behind the paywall on the Mothership site. I'm talking bonus segments of episodes like this one. I'm talking full exclusive episodes of shows like Slow Burn. We have a new season out about Clarence Thomas and Big Mood, Little Mood. You're going to want to subscribe today. Go to slate.com slash working plus to find out more and to subscribe right now. Now let's listen in on June's conversation with mystery novelist Ellen Hart.
2: Ellen Hart, thank you for joining us on Working. Thank
0: you. I'm really delighted for this conversation.
2: So I wanted to speak with you because so many of the people we talk to on the show start their careers as artists snatching the minutes and hours that aren't eaten up by their day jobs and family obligations. And then later we talk to people who spend their working lives writing or whatever their particular art form is. But we never really talk to creative people about the way they manage their time when they retire, or they at least start to reduce their work commitments. Before we go any further, Ellen, are you actually using the R word? Do you consider yourself retired? Are you just thinking about it? Where are you in this process?
0: Oh, I don't know. I guess I don't <laughs> respond well to the title. But um, <laughs> my press has very generously offered me a contract, again, but I turned it down. And But they said, well, they would hold it open. Um, you know, they're very nice about that. Um, yeah. But I don't I have another idea that I'm working on, but it's not anything related to Jane Lawless, so
2: Alright. Okay, so well we'll 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 get into this then. But before we even start to explore that whole question, let's spend a bit of time talking about your writing. For anyone who isn't familiar with your work, which I highly recommend, you've published 35 mystery novels between 1989 and 2020, 27 of them in the Jane Lawless series and eight in the Sophie Greenway series. Writing was actually your second career, though. Can you tell us the story of how you became a professional writer?
0: You know, I think I'd always secretly harbored a desire to write, and I think most <laughs> writers feel that way. And uh, I came out of the closet about the same time I came out of the closet. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, I was um, initially trained to be a chef and was doing a lot of different jobs. I finally got a job at a sorority at the University of Minnesota, which I loved. And it was a fairly well-off sorority, and it allowed me... I mean, I could cook just about anything I wanted to cook, and it was not the same kind of thing as a restaurant where you're doing the same thing day in and day out. And I enjoyed it. I loved it. But about, I don't know, a few years into it, I had my summers free. I'd been wasting them. (laughs) I was um, watching the P.D. James... Uh, mysteries on PBS here in the States, and uh, loved them. And and she was being interviewed one night after one of the episodes, and they asked her, you know, you're a good writer, why mysteries? Uh You know, meaning, why would you write trash when you could obviously write better fiction? And she said, you know, I thought uh, early on, I thought after the war, I would... I would write a mystery, and it would teach me how to construct a novel, and from there I would move on to the real thing, uh, literature with a capital L. And Mm -hmm. she said, you know, I realized very quickly that there was nothing that I wanted to write about that I couldn't write about within the context of a mystery, and she liked the structure. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, that's intriguing. She always talked about writing within the moral universe, my degree is in theology. Mm-hmm. Uh, wow! I, yeah, wow. <laughs> but I, you know, I, I had moved on from a lot of that, but not from my interest in the moral universe. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, well, I, you know, I'll give it a try. And that's another long story. But anyway, I was <laughs> able, I was able to get published, and it, I was um, very lucky because I hit a crest in um, the interest in gay and lesbian mysteries at the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, you don't hit that very often in your life. So I was well-published by a small press and then moved on to New York and uh, had a fairly successful career. So, yeah. Let's go back to that,
2: those, those summers that you felt you'd been wasting. Uh, what did you do differently after this kind of period where you thought, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take advantage here?
0: What, what happened that summer? After I got this idea in my head that I was going to write something, I went out and bought an old brother typewriter. Oh, my God. And I started working on an idea. And I wrote maybe 200 pages, and I realized it was I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know how to write a story. I didn't know where I was going with a story. I, it, it was pathetic. It was absolute dreck. So I thought, you know, you have to be, be a little more serious about that. And so I started reading P.D. James. mm mm-hmm. To deconstruct the way she created her novels. Luckily, you know, later on, I mean, I, I taught writing for like 17 years. yeah, And I, that's what I told my students to do, you know, take apart a novel. Look at it not just for the, you know, the, the forest, but try to see the trees, the plumbing, the, you know, how it was constructed. And I, I, I spent one entire winter reading her books trying to you know, form some ideas, started in the following summer with my old brother typewriter and also staying up really late at night writing. Mm. And by the end of the summer, I, I had a book. I didn't know if it was any good. I liked it. My partner <laughs> liked it. but you, And my friends liked it. You can't trust your friends, you know. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so, um, you know, I looked up in uh, the writer's almanac and to see what you could do with a, with a manuscript, uh, that, you know, potentially, uh, and I had a lesbian character in it and I thought, you know, that would be a, probably be the death knell of the story, but I found a couple presses, uh, I sent it to one and I got a call back three days later from the editor owner who said, you know, we love your idea, but it's too long and, uh we won't even look at it unless you cut it by you know down to 60,000 words and i thought that was a bit arbitrary uh, yes. I, so so um i looked at the uh, the novel and i actually it is one of the best paced novels because i i took out every paragraph every sentence every word that i could and i got it down to about 71,000 words and i sent it off and i was um Lucky enough to get it published. That's another odyssey. But I was able to get it published, not with that press, but with another press, and uh, I was off and running.
2: Another press where uh, I worked at the time, and where um, Barbara Wilson, I believe, was your editor. She was on working last summer. Oh, good. But then you, you know, I think you're minimizing a little. You wrote thirty five of them. You know, you wrote twenty seven in a series. Yeah. I mean, I, and again, I don't, maybe you're not done. So, so this was obviously something that became a very clear practice. Um, So let's just say, so I know everything got weird for everybody in 2020. So let's just say in 2015, what was your writing practice like? Um, Did you write every day? How many hours did you write? Where did you write? Like, what was your writing practice in, in kind of back in normal times?
0: Early on in my writing, I was still working. So I would write Pretty much in the summers, I needed a lot of just really free time to actually cold write. Yeah. I could edit, I could I could think up new storylines. I could um, even do some promotion while I was working. But summers were when I was doing the prom- the, the major part of my writing. In when I got an offer from uh, Ballantine in New York, it was a situation where they offered me a five book contract, which I really could not turn down. Yeah. After that, I quit my job uh-huh. and it was like uh, jumping off a, a cliff without a mm. parachute yeah. because at the time, I didn't know how precarious the writing life really was, yeah. yeah, that you were going hat in hand to your publishers, you know, every two years and saying, "Are you going to reemploy me or not?" And most a lot mm-hmm. of my friends, the answer was no. Yeah. so i you know the entire time I was writing, I always thought, well, I'm going to be cancelled here at some point. But I loved it and I was able to write year round. I was never somebody who wrote every day.
2: Mm.
0: I wrote <laughs> I went on a tour with two writers and we were they we got asked that question and one of them answered I write on Thursdays and the other one said I write on Saturdays and I thought, well one of them was a full time writer and one of them was a practicing attorney. Right. So I thought, well, I'm never going to be that. I have to work a lot harder than that. <laughs> but I guess I i felt it gave me permission. There were days when I just, I don't think I ever felt blocked, but I yeah, didn't yeah. see where I was going to go. Yeah. And for me, writing was like driving on a road at night. You <laughs> couldn't see from where you were to the end, but I needed I needed to see the next few chapters because I always had to be writing towards something, like yeah. the headlights on the highway. Um, they kept me on the road. If I couldn't see the next few chapters, I had to sit back and because I came to the book very much the way the reader comes to the book. it opened before me. I didn't know everything before I started. So that that had a had a bearing on you know my yeah h- how I wrote. but um, by by large, I was at my desk every day wow. almost every day.
2: Yeah, you know I, mysteries do feel, you know, writing is always mysterious. Where does it come from? Yeah. There's a magic to it. But mysteries where plotting is key, you know, they're not just plotting, especially, you know, you, you obviously were very influenced by P.D. James, who has all kinds of other ideas and yep. and things going on. But did you ever kind of keep a running list of like clues and plot points that I could use in books down the line? To what extent were you kind of stockpiling those kinds of ideas.
0: You know, I, this is going to sound very weird and it's just my practice, but I wrote to a title every oh. time. And so for me, that was critical. The title would resonate for me and it helped me s- penetrate the book. Once you penetrated the book, what it was the, the key sort of thematic ideas of the book, mm-hmm. what, what I was trying to get at, then I would, I needed to know who committed the crime, because a mystery is told around a crime, uh, who committed the crime and why. And that led me then to the other characters, because in a mystery you have to cast that net of suspicion over every pretty much everybody in the book. Right, right. And so um, you had to tie everybody to that, potentially to that crime. It helped me understand thematically, what was going on, and find my way into the story. So if I collected anything, I collected title ideas.
2: Wow, that's so interesting to me, because one of the things that's always stuck out to me with your books is that a lot of people who write, especially in the mystery space, they'll kind of have a a pattern to their titles. I mean, the most famous, of course, being... um, Sue Grafton and her kind of alphabetical progression, right. but there are lots of them. There are lots of these kind of, you know, the, there's a structure that they stick to, and I'm sure there's a marketing angle to that, but yours have always been very different. So, that's really super interesting to me, and and would you kind of, would you be just, like, sitting having dinner and you suddenly think, the cruel ever after? You know,
0: I mean, like... I, the, yeah, I, I mean, um, I don't remember where that one came from, but well, I was, my partner and I were walking around... Um, a lake here in Minneapolis one night, and there's a band shell. And there was a guy up singing a folk song, and the n- title of the folk song was um, An Intimate Ghost. And I thought, wow, I love that. <laughs> so I mentally took a note of that and went home and started, well, what could that be about? <laughs> And um, I I love these resonant titles. I also, I mean, I I had some very silly titles like "Dial M for Meatloaf," and um, <laughs> which I also like because I like humor. Yeah,
3: but yeah, um, yeah,
0: yeah. that was a book I liked a lot because there was a character in it who talked to cows, and I <laughs> adored this guy. You know, and he was the bad guy in the book, wow, wow. but I loved writing him. Um, I loved the the working with these characters and these personalities and. Thematically, that's where the characters came from, the ones that would fit the story. Mm. Um, I actually wrote a book once and it was going absolutely nowhere. And I, <laughs> I mean, it, I could not get it right. And I stopped and I rethought it for about a month and I realized I had the wrong characters. Oh. So I had to recast the whole story. I mean, it's a bitch, but you know, <laughs> to get the story, I, I was too far down the, the line in terms of time. Yeah. That I Because it was a book a year at that point. And yeah, yeah. Uh, so,
2: you know, I had to make it work. Interesting. Interesting. All right. Well, actually, I just have one question about this, like the book a year thing, because that is so, apart from anything else, just stressful. Like, how did you cope with that stress? I mean, was it stressful to you to, to just know that, you know, part of your contract yep. with your publisher was that you would deliver with that frequency? Yeah. What did that do to you?
0: It was awful because I'll tell you, I I started another series, the Jane Lawless series. Eventually, went to St. Martin's, and I was still writing ah. the culinary series with uh, Ballantine, Random House, and they each wanted a book a year. Oh my god! And that went on for like ten years. Wow! And I couldn't write two books a year, so I. But you know, I would, I was writing all the time, and I was yeah. promoting like crazy. Yeah. And I was teaching, and I my out of, you know I, t- I had a very sick mother. We had kids, you know. I mean, yeah. Yeah. it was it, w- it was insane. And um, you know, along about let's see the midway point in the the culinary series, um, my mother had a stroke. My dog died, and oh. I had a nervous breakdown. <laughs> so, um, you know, the, I I just couldn't. It, the stress was just simply too much. Yeah, yeah, and. Uh, you know, I got better, um, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I worked my way through it. Yeah, But, yeah, the stress was pretty intense. Yeah. You know, I was turning in a book, like, maybe once every eight months. I, I remember I, I had just signed a contract with, with Ballantyne. My editor called me, and it was, like, four months into the contract, and he said, well, when can we get it? I was like, you know, I, th- I don't write that kind of book. Oh, I write yeah. a traditional mystery. I write a cozy, but they're not simple the structure and the plotting is very complex and i i don't write like that i can't just toss one off yeah
1: we'll be back with more of june's conversation with ellen hart after this Hey, listeners, Isaac Butler here. If you're enjoying this show, we just have a couple things we'd like to ask you to do. The first is to subscribe, if you don't already, from wherever you get your podcasts. The other is to rate, recommend, or review this show, depending on which podcast app you use. If it's Overcast, you want to tap that star with your thumb. Uh, If it's Apple Podcasts, you want to maybe leave a review or or rate us five stars. Uh, All right, that's about it. Now back to June's conversation with Ellen Hart.
2: Okay, I'm going to go back. We're not going to use that R word. We're not going to say retire, but we're just going to note that you you haven't published for a while. You you turned down the contract. And so obviously, even though you're working on another project, you're writing less. Um and I, I I only want to if I'm sure it feels like I'm harping on it. It's just it feels so interesting because it's something that people just don't talk about. And I understand why. Um Oh. Yeah, no. I mean, ahead. I have
0: other I have other writers that say, "What are you doing?" And I'm I'd say I'm not writing right now. They do not get it. You have to write. If you're a writer, you have to write all the time. You have to be driven. It has to be your cross to bear. It's, <laughs> that has never been my approach to writing. Yeah. So, you know, and it still isn't.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I guess I, I understand that, you know, I do things I don't need to do. I don't want to act like this is a crazy thing. You know, you do them because you want to. You do them because it's fun. You do them for fame. You do them for money, whatever. You know, we, that's that's not a crazy thing. But I also think that people don't need to work like until their last day. You know? Like I think it's great to aspire to retirement. Call it what you want. Like that's a great thing in life.
0: So yeah. One of the things that I was never able to do during my intensely writing years was read enough. Yeah. Yeah. And if I had to give up one or the other, I would give up writing in a heartbeat before I would Mm. give up reading. Mm. And my reading has changed enormously. I love. I still love novels, but my primary writing is reading is um, nonfiction, history and biography and science and politics and all of that. To me, is just I gobble it. Wow! It, they're the books that I wanted to read all my life, and I haven't didn't have the time. You know, I, I again, I'm a little bit projecting, but
2: I think as writers. We all kind of, there's a sense of, I don't know if it's mercenary reading, like we're reading to get a piece of information that maybe we can use yep. in our work. Um, mm-hmm. Have you been able to to read for reading's sake now? Yes.
0: Oh. Yes. Wow. When I'm reading fiction, my editor mm-hmm.
2: comes out. Your inner editor. Yeah.
0: My inner editor comes out and I start, once I get into the story, it seems to cease. But initially <laughs> it's like, that's a bad sentence or... I wouldn't have started it that way. Or, no, 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 don't do that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, But then, again, the story and that goes away. And it doesn't happen so much, although the story is every bit as important in nonfiction as it is in fiction. But I find my reading is so rich now because I'm not just looking for an idea Uh or looking for some research information or i as soon as i see something oh i got to jot that down because i could use that you know it's more fluid which i love yeah you could yeah. disappear into the book so you're
2: doing a lot more reading which sounds just dreamy yeah. um what, what generally like how have you adapted your schedule like what do your days look like now
0: um i read late at night into the night that's always been my choice oh. i love being up at night uh, so I sleep late. I get up uh, in the morning and I do my email and I uh, usually um, look at what's going on in the world. Then my partner and I get together for an hour. We, you know, we live together and we have a lot of time, but we sometimes are off doing our own things. And mm-hmm. so we get together for coffee or, you know, right now we're going over some old journals. It's we, I love it. It's just so fun. And then uh, after lunch I read I read and I read and I read all afternoon. I'm the designated cook in the family so I do that I love I love that um, and then we usually watch something in the evening and then uh, I go back to reading I just I love reading <laughs> apparently uh, I mean
2: I live with one of those people um, yeah so do you have any advice for writers or other artists who might be? pondering or perhaps dreaming of kind of, let's just say, changing their schedule, maybe spending less time on their writing or their painting or their composing or whatever it is they do. What words of advice do you have for those people? I've never been asked that
0: question. (laughs) You know, I always get asked the question, well, how do I write? How do I get how do I force myself to get in front of the computer? That one I'm very keen on answering, because I know the answer to that. Well, tell me that one, then. Tell me that one. Well, no, I mean, I think you have to take the decision off the table. Mm. You know, I mean, for years, you know, it was, if someone isn't bleeding, don't interrupt me. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Because when I first started writing, first quit my job, it was like, oh, you're home, and you take me to the airport, you know. So that's, you know, you... (laughs) What I would tell students is, you know, you would decide. You don't come to Saturday morning, if you have Saturdays off, and think, hmm, should I write? Or should I go to brunch with my friends? Or should I, you know, whatever. You make the decision before that. I write Saturday mornings. I write from 9 to noon. And then you're free to go to brunch after that. You have to take that because in the moment you can't, you're not going to make the right decision. So that's the way to do that. Now, as far as how to stop doing... Hmm. I
2: mean, was it easy? Did Did you find that you could just... I realize it probably just didn't happen one day that you said, okay, I'm not doing this anymore. But, like, did was it hard for you to kind of change your schedule and change wha- well, what you spent your time doing? Yes and no, because
0: it coincided with COVID. Mm. I had a book out in 2020 that I wrote in 2019. I mean, we were aware of COVID in 2019, but, you know... In 2020, I was stopped in my tracks because I didn't know how to continue the series. Mm. I didn't know if, you know, well, who should die? What's going to happen here? What's going to happen to the country? I just couldn't write through that. I know a lot of people did. Had really great time writing. Uh, I have a dear friend and maybe this is why he's on the New York Times bestseller list, but he said, oh, I'm not going to let that COVID into my books. I'm not going to write about that. There's no COVID I'm going to write about. So he just kept writing as if everything was normal. Yeah. Um, okay, you know, Godspeed. I, that's great. But um, I couldn't. And so that stopped me. And so being stopped for that 2020 and even 2021, I did other things. I started reading more. I started uh, cooking more. We, you know, we didn't invite people over, so um, Kathy and I had, you know, we watched more things uh, that we we love film and uh, good TV series and that kind of thing. So we enjoyed that. So for me, it was kind of enforced. Yeah. Yeah. On me. So I think maybe it was a little easier. I mean, I was thinking about it the whole time. How like f- How will I continue this? Do I want to continue this? Yeah. So I had a couple of years to think about that, and ultimately, I think I came down on the side of no. I don't want to continue this, and I never said that to my fans because every time I even commented on it, I get a lot of emails. Mm-hmm. So I just didn't say anything, and I, yeah. you know, now uh, I still get emails. When is the next one going to be out? And I individually write and say, "There's nothing in the pipeline," and I really think that I'm probably done, but. Um, it's hard to say that. Yeah, know? yeah, absolutely. Change well, also, is hard.
2: Yeah, also because you you have books out and, and, you know, in a sense, everything that you do is promoting those books, you know. Yes. And so it's, it's not just you and your kind of feelings. It's also about the machinery of... Of the whole, yes.
0: Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, now that I'm uh, 74, I'm much, you know, less... Able to get around. I have I have very severe arthritis, ah. so that's kind of felled that promotional business. And yeah, yeah. Uh, I do a lot of Zoom and things like that. I do a mm-hmm. lot of reading uh, for back cover blurbs because I feel like I need to give back. I think that's mm-hmm. very important. Mm-hmm. And I do some work with people on manuscripts, but by and large, um, you know, my time is mine now. Yeah, and I love it. Yeah, well, you I deserve love it. it. You deserve yeah. It. Yeah, I don't know what to tell someone. You know, I don't know how to say step back because it's your life. Yeah. yeah, it's such a change.
2: You seem to always have been very involved in what you might call writing culture. I'm thinking of like associations for Minnesota writers or mystery writers. Again, lesbian writers. I wonder Are you generally a joiner, or was it something about the writing life that made you want to be part of these groups and and help other people who are in the same profession
0: you know Ellen is my middle name and so I took Ellen and the last part of my very Germanic last name to write under because I knew people would never be able to pronounce my last name <laughs> and I thought on the off chance I got published that I'd you know, pick an easier name Yeah. so Ellen is you know I've often thought I wanted to write a book about this, Ellen is a very different person in some ways oh. than Pat is, Pat's mm-hmm. my real name, my yeah. first name and Ellen was, had to be, of necessity, a joiner. I'm not. Pat is not. I was never a joiner. But Ellen had to be. And Ellen was far more extroverted. I'm not an extrovert at all. Um, but she had to be because that was part of the business. And I'll tell you what surprised me about that was that my best and my dearest friends came from the writing community, whether it was uh, other writers, um, editors, even some fans, mm. became really close. I, I became really close to, mm. and it replaced the community that I had been a part of, which had dissolved mm. by then. So I loved it. It you know going to conferences and conventions becomes after a while. It's very exciting initially, but after a while it becomes you know I've got to do this. So you pack your bag and you go right. But it becomes more of a uh, of a yearly um, going back to high school and seeing your old friends at yeah. a reunion or something, and uh, and that was always fun. It was the one time a year I could see my editor, mm. whom it, who I adore. Mm. So yeah, I mean, I, I grew to love that part, and I felt it was necessary because some of the some of the the opportunities that came along came because of the networking I was able to do. Mm. Mm. And so I knew that that was a very important part of the job, the career that I was on. Do you still feel like Ellen, or are
2: you back to being Pat now? Are you? i mean, I'm being back to being Pat. <laughs> wow.
0: Wow, that's so interesting. I can move into Ellen.
2: Mm. I mean,
0: wouldn't it be a fascinating book to write about yes. a sp- person who s- splits, and the splits get gets wider and wider? And, you know, I don't know. I just think that would be a fascinating book to write. Yeah, I agree. I'm ready to read it. Um, <laughs>
2: make it so. Yeah. I'm going to be the editor. Um, is it ready yet? When can I see it? I uh, not, yeah. we- <laughs> not, not yet, but not yet. maybe. Okay. Yeah. Ellen Hart, this was a fascinating conversation. I am so glad to have had a chance to talk with you. Thank you so much for visiting us
0: on Working. Thank you. It was so much fun.
1: When we come back, June and I will talk about how being an artist can be both a job and an identity and how to slow down when the time comes.
3: This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.
1: June, before we get started discussing this wonderful interview, I have to say, as a proud alum of the University of Minnesota's Writing MFA program, I was happy to hear the school get a shout out. Woo-hoo! Anyway, I want to ask you a historical question. Since you are writing a book about lesbian culture and activism through the history of uh, those spaces that it took place <laughs> in, and it's Pride Month when this episode mm-hmm. drops, she mentioned starting her career right when gay and lesbian mystery fiction was kind of having a moment. What is that moment when does gay and lesbian genre fiction begin to be something you can actually sell or even make a living off of
2: oh it was such a wonderful moment it was in the 1980s and i was really familiar with it because at the time i happened to be working in a feminist bookstore and a little bit later in feminist publishing in fact at the press where ellen's first mystery was published and This was a time when feminist mysteries were also getting attention, or even just mysteries written by women with independent female protagonists. Um, The women who solved these crimes were translators, Uh, they were printers, they were PIs, they were cops, and of course, at least one was a restaurateur. And, you know, like many publishing bubbles, that one eventually burst, but it was really wonderful while it lasted.
1: That's incredible. You know, June, in our first year of doing this show, you introduced me to the concept of planners versus pantsers, (laughs) which is to say someone who plans their art out versus someone who flies by the seat of their pants. Mm. I was really surprised to hear that Ellen, who for much of her career was writing a book a year, you know, these mysteries, was a pantser. We always uh, think of pantsing as a really messy process. There's no way you're going to get a book a year done. Right. But, you know, it strikes me that that one thing that that genre does is give you the architecture of a structure that you can then explore within. So like, you know, maybe the form or genre we work in can be the plan that allows (laughs) us to pants. You
2: are 100% correct, I believe, Isaac, because I had exactly that same thought process. Like, sometimes Ellen was writing more than one book a year as a pantser. And I've read them. They were really good. Uh, And I was also reminded of another incredibly prolific writer who I also spoke with last year for working, the romance writer Harper Bliss. And she also said that knowing the essential beats of a romance novel and where they had to come, so like the meeting, the first kiss, the conflict, the resolution, the happily ever after, that made it easy to pants the rest. And I now think that, yes, those essential building blocks of genre writing Alter the definitions of pantsing and plotting.
1: Hmm. I was really struck by how much she talked about writing as a kind of identity. You know, now I'm not gonna say it's the same thing as, you know, me being a cisgendered white Jewish man or whatever, but (laughs) but but identities have their good side and they have their baggage, right? And she really seemed to be sort of sanguine about both of those things. So, you know, in terms of writing, the good part is it can really help with conceiving how you organize your life around your art and what you need. But the bad part is, and I don't think this is just in the case of writers, the bad part is we have this platonic idea of what a writer is in our heads. They suffer, they're tormented, they work all the time, they don't care about their loved ones or, you know, whatever it is. And it can really fuck you up and actually make getting your work done harder. This is something I talk about, you know, since we mentioned it on the podcast that I have a therapist. I talk about you know, who I am versus the ideal writer in my brain all the time in therapy. And it's sort of the only way that I haven't been crushed under the weight of those (laughs) expectations that I put on myself. You've been a writer of one kind or another for decades. You've just finished your first book. (laughs) How have you navigated this challenge? What advice do you have for people who are figuring out what kind of writer they are and might be worried they're not the right or the quote unquote real kind?
2: I think the experience of having written or at least being pretty far along in the writing process, because I do still have a lot of revision to do. Like, it makes you want to write a second book just so you can implement the things you've learned the first time around, <laughs> including yeah. about that identity stuff. You know, having done it once, you can quiet that voice that keeps asking, oh, you really think you're good enough to do this? You are you can write a book? Are you sure? You know, you know, even though you kind of knew beforehand that you're going to throw away a lot of stuff that you spent days, let's just say days, sweating over. You figured out a way of keeping track of quotes and notes. Um, I don't know if this is quite about identity, but having written a book, I feel like more of a journalist because I always was reluctant really to interview people. Um, You know, the kind of things that we write for Slate tend not to require reporting, or at least maybe I should just say in my time working for Slate uh, and also having spent some time as a critic. But other than big fresca stories, which is what we used to call those big feature stories that we were able to take time to report, like I just never wanted to call anyone up. Now I absolutely understand that the point of talking to people who were at a place or who were involved in a movement is that they can tell you how it felt. You don't go to them for facts, but for feelings. I did not understand that before. Um, Those are some of the things that I've learned Mm. uh, both about writing a book and also about the identity of writing. Did that answer your question?
1: It did. It did. Absolutely. You know, I also loved this idea that you talked a little bit about, about, you know, how to slow down, whether it's taking a break or retirement or what, right? You kind of flip the decisions you've made around your work and how to get it done on their head. So if part of what you do in writing a book is just decide in advance, you know what, Sunday mornings I'm writing. So I am turning down every invitation to socialize on Sunday mornings. So that I don't wake up on Sunday morning and wonder, oh, should I write or not? You flip that, right? So now it's like, actually, no, Sunday mornings, I am not writing. I'm going to book things so that, you know, I uh, am not free then to write, you know? But I also think to get back to what we were talking about above the identity again of being an yeah, artist yeah. can whatever art form you do can make it harder to do this stuff because we're supposed to work forever. We're supposed to work all the time. We're not necessarily supposed to make a lot of money and we're supposed <laughs> to die with our boots on or our, our paint in our hand or whatever. You know, yeah. I'm just, getting to the age 44 uh, we- when thinking about retirement is something my my wife and I are doing, you know, having those conversations. what do we do when our kids in college? What do we do when Ann doesn't want to work anymore, et cetera, et cetera and so forth. but yeah. at no point in those conversations has my stopping working been something I'm willing to discuss honestly. you know I mean, can you how do you think about retirement?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think about it all the time. Um, I really thought about it in earnest after I read Oliver Berkman's book, 4,000 Weeks. He came on the show. We talked about it. And then I read a book that I'm not going to say was like a great book, but it really got me thinking. It's Bill Perkins' Die with Zero, uh, about how really, you know, what are you saving for? What are you kind of squirreling things away for when really you may not be in a position to enjoy it later. Now, obviously, this is a kind of privileged uh, concept. Not, it's just, it just doesn't apply to some people. But I thought about it and I realized I didn't need to keep doing exactly what I was doing. I didn't need to do things I didn't want to do that I could prioritize choices And that means that I apparently still really do want to write books and I still really want to make podcasts. Uh, Like that is what I want to spend my time on. There isn't anything else I'd rather be doing. I don't know how long that will remain the case, but it was really clarifying to think about it. You know, I think it's a good exercise to put yourself through. You know, why am I doing this? Is it because I have to? Is it because I think I have to? Um, You know, maybe you do have to keep doing things you don't like, you know, the economy sucks, the capitalist system sucks, but at least think about it. I think that's pretty useful.
1: Yeah, that is useful. You know, it reminds me that uh, my graduation speaker was Stephen King. And it was a few years after he had had the the bike accident where Mm -hmm. he was hit by a a car while biking and almost died. Mm -hmm. And so his entire graduation speech was about the inevitability of death. I mean, (laughs) you know, and he made a joke about it at the beginning. He's like, why did you bring a horror writer here to give you your graduation (laughs) speech? These are supposed to be optimistic. And then the whole speech was about the inevitability of death. And, you know, he talked a lot about that moment where he thought he was going to die and realizing that you really can't take it. With you, Do you know what I mean? And in his case, it was because he wanted us to think really seriously about doing good works and about doing Mm. charity. And he had brought representatives from a local Poughkeepsie food bank who were there in the audience and he demanded everyone in the audience give them money. And, you know, he was (laughs) that was sort of where he was going with it. But it is worth thinking about, you know, no one gets out alive. Right. Everyone's story ends the same way on some level. And, uh, you know, thinking about why you're doing what you're doing and whether you really want to be doing it. Within the confines of what you can and can't do with capitalism. Like, we want to be very cognizant of that. Yes. Is a really useful thing to be thinking about as artists. There are artists who are super obsessed. With their legacies, you know, yeah. when Mapplethorpe found out that he was HIV positive, he his his work ethic, you know, kicked up to a whole nother level because wow. he wanted to ensure that he had this legacy as one of the most important American artists of of his era. You know, um, there are artists who don't care about that stuff at all. They don't leave wills. They don't organize in the state. They just do what they do. And then they 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 die, you know. Yeah. And there's nothing right or wrong about either of those things. It's just about you know, what kind of life do you want to lead and what is important to you and what isn't.
2: Yeah. And I think another thing that a lot of people are thinking about right now is that very few people, as we all are aware, you know, work they however many years at the same company and you build up your pension and then you retire. Life doesn't work that way anymore. Now you can maybe, you know, maybe stop doing your The job that you have been doing or you can maybe work part time or you can maybe try to make some money. Yeah, (laughs) whatever it is. But like it's no longer just on or off. And maybe one of the things, uh, you know, that you choose to do uh, with your time uh, when you are still bright and full of ideas and full of energy is maybe to do some artistic pursuits.
1: That is a really great point. That one of the things that maybe opening up more time in your life actually can cause is more time to create yeah. art rather than less. Yeah. 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 Well, that's all the time we have for today's show. Uh, I just want to leave you with one more quick Slate Plus pitch. Slate Plus members get full access behind the paywall at Slate. They get bonus segments on shows like this one. They get bonus full episodes of shows like Slow Burn, which has an amazing new season about Clarence Thomas. You're going to really want access to the full thing. It's packed with amazing insights into him and how he became who he is today. Go to slate.com slash working plus right now to sign up.
2: Thank you to Ellen Hart for being our guest this week and thanks, as always, to Cameron Drews who has solved the mystery of making great podcasts week after week. Speaking of Cameron, he'll be in the host's chair next week bringing you an interview with Sam Fragoso, host of the Talk Easy podcast. Until then, get back to work.